Kent Garrett, welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. We entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. Our guest is Brett Forrest. He is a national security reporter for the Wall Street Journal, where his investigative work often focuses on the former Soviet Union. Brett has two new books. The Big Fix, The Hunt for the Match Fixers, Bringing Down Soccer, came out in 2014, and Lost Son, An American Family Trapped Inside the FBI's Secret War, will be out this May. I'm joined by 15 of my Harvard classmates. Bordle, um, Alison Bordle. I was a class of 63, then Peace Corps, and then uh, not too long later, oh, and then I got a master's oh. at Harvard. Uh, and I went, then I, um, not, not long later, I moved to Italy, and I've been in Italy for 53 years now. Ooh. And so I more, I don't know that much about Italy either, really, but I'm kind of out of touch, I think, with American things. But um, I enjoy these these talks. I have made some very stupid comments at times, uh, but <laughs> there we are. Okay, okay. <laughs> David Allen. Uh, I'd be uh, honored to join making those kinds of comments, Cindy. Uh, we all do. Um, <laughs> I'm in the Boston area in Concord, also class of '63. I like to say I have. I've had a pastiche of a life, Um, business, academics, and uh, the last decades have been uh, activism, uh, part of a global uh, coalition uh, in support of democracy in one way or another, particularly in the digital world. Uh, I'm quite looking forward to this discussion. Okay, Alden. Uh, all, like everybody else, or like most of the people here, class of 63, uh, have uh, been in various places in the country, D.C., uh, Flint, Michigan, Chicago, and now live just south of San Francisco, uh, where my wife and I have a firm which uh, consults with nonprofits on fundraising and executive search. Okay, Jerry. Morning. In Pasadena, California, uh, class of 63 also, became uh, a lawyer. Went to the Peace Corps in Cusco, Peru, worked for the Department of Justice, worked for an oil company, then went over to the good side and worked for Audubon, California, and the State Water Resources Control Board, and then for a nonprofit trade association. All right. Anne. Uh, okay, I'm Ann Huberman in Peterborough, New Hampshire. Uh, I'm, I'm class of 63 <clears throat> and uh, a retired academic librarian and a climate activist now. Okay, John. Oh, hi, John Woodford. I'm here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, class of 63. I've been um, editing and writing uh, here and there in New York and Chicago and here for the last, since 77, but retired, of course. Okay, Peter, Peter Grilly. Um, Yes, I'm originally class of 63 at Harvard, but graduated in 65. I grew up in Japan and have spent most of my life doing cultural exchanges and worked for the Japan Society for many years. 
Um, and I'm looking forward to today's uh, discussion. Okay, David Othmer. David Othmer, I grew up in South and Central America and <clears throat> spent most of my career here in the United States in public television, first in New York City and most recently in Philadelphia, where I am right now. All righty. <laughs> Jeff. Yeah, hi. Uh, Jeff Fox, also class of 63, originally from Chicago. After uh, after college, um, I went to Venezuela as what we call what we're called community developer, working in barrios and very poor working class uh, neighborhoods of, of Caracas. From there, went to study sociology, became a sociologist, uh, <laughs> teaching for several years. And I'm now in Spain and writing fiction. All righty. George, yeah, George, George Jones. George Jones, class of 63. I am a proud to be an Okie from Muskogee, currently living in Chile, Ann Arbor, Michigan. <laughs> okay. Mr. Shapiro. Um, hi. Um, I'm a retired physician, uh, now living in Louisville, Kentucky and uh, trying to figure out uh, to what extent Kentucky is or is not really a Southern state. <laughs> okay, good luck. Okay. Marcy. I run Clean Air Campaign and it's Open Rivers Project in New York City. And our goals include keeping people out of harm's way in deadly storms by ending development in public waterways like the Hudson River. Okay, great. Mason. Uh, Mason Morfitt, I'm class of 62. <clears throat> older and wiser and arguably better looking than my participants uh, <laughs> here. I spent most of my professional life in land conservation and since then uh, as a volunteer working on climate change. All right, and Brett, welcome. Thank you for joining us and uh, it's all yours. Wow, what an impressive group, I have to say. Um, <clears throat> you have much better attendance than at most of my meetings at work. Uh, <laughs> I'm impressed by that. And um, so I, I see that a, a, two of you are in Ann Arbor, which is close to my heart. That's where I went to college. And I dare I say class of 95. Oh, <laughs> I'm a little touch younger uh, than, uh, than most of you here. Um, but um, but I probably share some of your experiences. It sounds like many of you lived abroad and done a lot of really interesting things, which has uh, sort of been my my line for many years now. Um, so yeah, let's, let's just what's the what's the short version here? I work at the Wall Street Journal. I'm in Washington D.C. I'm a reporter here. I'm in our national security group. Sounds really highfalutin, but we're just looking for good stories all the time, like anybody else. And I, uh, I do more investigative type work, and uh, a lot of my work focuses on uh, the former Soviet Union, uh, Russia and Ukraine. Uh, I can sort of backtrack from there. I, um, after, after school, I uh, spent a number of years in magazines in New York and then, uh, then moved abroad. I lived in Moscow for a number of years, lived in Kiev as well, um, uh, reported broadly from that part of the world for, for many years. Um, that, was, that began about 20 years ago. And uh, lived in South America as well. And um, I was a magazine freelancer, magazine writer for a long time. And 
and through uh, well, that was back when the when magazines had advertising revenue, and you could make a living doing that. Um, and um, through those experiences, I was able to travel widely uh, throughout the world and work on a lot of really interesting projects. Um, I later took a contract at ESPN, where I wrote about uh, corruption and crime in global sports, which is a fascinating topic, as some of you I'm sure know. Um, and then uh, from there, I uh, moved down to Washington and took this current job. And um, I found myself in Kiev uh, in, on February 24th of last year when the bombs started falling and war broke out um, and covered the first uh, several months of that war, which was my first time doing such a thing. And um, uh, as you can imagine, uh, had some very uh, uh, foundational experiences there. Um, now, I've, I've written a few books. And I guess that's partially why we're, we're here to convene. Um, I've written three books, um, and my, my newest book is coming out in just a few months, and uh, it's an expansion of an, uh, an article I wrote for the Wall Street Journal. It's really an investigative piece that concerns the war in Ukraine and also concerns um, the FBI's transformation after 9-11. I'm sure we can get into all that, but uh, that's probably a good place to stop and as an introduction. Okay. okay, well, tell us about the big fix. Tell us about that. <clears throat> Certainly be happy to. So the big fix um, grew out of an article um, that I did for, for ESPN when they used to have a magazine there. An editor of mine called me one day and he was really into global soccer, uh, which I didn't know much about. I'd grown up with the sport, but uh, wasn't a dedicated follower of it. And anyway, my editor was and he said, I'm seeing all these crazy scores in these games all over the world where, you know, it's like 10 to nothing. Obviously, soccer is usually low scoring. Or he would say, uh, sometimes you'll see games that result uh, in uh, one team by the exact margin it needs not to be sort of relegated or to make the next round, et cetera. So we sort of put our heads together, started reading up on it, and we realized that there was there was something going on in the global game that wasn't really being talked about uh, broadly. Um, and what we were talking about was match fixing, you know, the, the manipulation of the results of, of soccer games. Um, and my first phone call was to a guy named Chris Eaton, who would become a very close friend of mine, uh, still is to this day. And he was the head of security at FIFA, you know, the global governing body of the sport. Uh, now Chris was, had come out of the federal police in Australia and like so many folks from that country, he's just a great character, um, you know, likes to throw down a beer and tell stories. And uh, he, 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 Chris went on from the federal police in Australia to Interpol. And he eventually became the, uh, the director of operations of Interpol. Um, so he, he was a very interesting character who had this sort of like uh, sort of homespun wisdom that, that he picked up in Australia. But then he had uh, hands-on uh, knowledge of uh, global policing at, at its highest level. Uh, from there, from that job at Interpol, he he went to FIFA, and he, as a as a lifelong cop, immediately sniffed out something that was going on in the organization that um, he knew that he needed to address, and eventually he would come to fear personally. Um, and that started with match fixing, and Chris became the sort of white knight of the issue. Uh, because folks, Chris was outside of soccer, uh, and now he was suddenly inside of it, and he was surrounded by people who simply just wanted to, to protect the game 
and continue making a lot of money off of it. Whereas Chris realized we have a criminal problem here, an epidemic, and we need to address it. So they gave him a few years that, you know, they sort of hired him as window dressing, but he actually went to work seriously. Um, and he, he, he put together this staff and dispatched them all around the world. And he, he traveled widely himself and they basically figured out, you know, who's who in the world of match fixing. And what they learned was that it's actually run by uh, Chinese criminal groups, largely the triads, as I'm sure you all know. And uh, their general uh, MO is to, um, to hire Singaporean nationals because they speak English. They have one of the most widely accepted passports in the world. And they're close enough and they're sort of like in the orbit of, of the East Asian uh, criminal outfits. Um, and they would basically dispatch these guys all around the world and they would uh, corrupt everybody in the soccer world, uh, excluding some of the top leagues. Uh, but what I'm talking about are national team officials, um, uh, coaches, players, uh, referees, anybody and everybody that they could they could uh, get into uh, by many different means. Uh, and this would this would allow them to manipulate uh, the results of games. And the, the purpose of this was simply for illegal betting back in the Asian markets, which uh, have incredible liquidity because uh, the amount of money that's uh, gambled on soccer per year. And this comes from many different estimates, including Interpol and other agencies, the FBI also. Uh, it's it's annually it's one trillion dollars. Just incredible to put your head around. And I really stress tested that number. But that's the number that keeps coming up from all the so-called experts. Well, how uh, do they do it on the ground? Actually, how do they do it? I mean, how do they fix a match? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. They, they do it in a number of ways. Um, the easiest way is just to pay off the goalie. You got this huge net behind you and, you know, you can sort of alligator arm uh you know play oh i missed that that ball right yeah. um you know soccer in that way is probably the easiest game to fix um because one guy the goalie can influence it so so uh so heavily so strongly because here's the thing when you're trying to fix a match you're always trying to lose right you're not trying to win you're trying to let a goal in so if you can get if you can get the goalie under your wing you know, you're, you're sort of halfway there. Um, but it's it's better, of course, to have others on the team. So you go out from the goal. You get the uh, defender, two defenders, and then out from there. But you can also um, uh, corrupt the referee. Um, you know, they, they, had, um, they had one particular ref, uh, and, and he – he, he, he was sort of, they would try out all these different refs. Um, and one guy, he had refed several uh, World Cup matches. His name was Ibrahim Chaibo. Uh, he's from Sub-Saharan Africa. And he, um, his first uh, go around with, with this syndicate was in South Africa the week before the World Cup began that year. And it was a, a friendly, like a sort of uh, an exhibition match before the main event involving South Africa. And I've forgotten the, the opponent, but Chaibo was so eager to impress the Singaporeans and the, the Chinese uh, criminal gangs that he he was calling these these penalty kicks for for uh, infractions, supposed infractions that hadn't even taken place in, inside the penalty box and was just kept giving the South Africans these free kicks. The crowd was going wild. The opposition knew that something was going on. And anybody who was watching on TV could could tell that it wasn't right. 
Um, and his performance, the referee's performance, so impressed the, the criminal outfit that he became sort of their regular guy. Um, anyway, there's so many different iterations of this. Yeah. So, um, Brett, could you talk about the, the life and fate of Paramal, the character? Oh, yes. Yes. So yeah. Wilson, Wilson Raj Paramal um, of uh, Tamil Indian descent, uh, Singaporean national. So Wilson Raj Paramal, he was the most prolific match fixer. Um, he, um, he was fixing matches, corrupting players and officials and referees on, uh, on several different continents. Uh, and he became really crafty and adept at it. Um, you know, for example, some of these, these fixers, they would go to, well, let, let me back up. See that it's all about um, financial vulnerability, right? I mean, it's harder to corrupt a player who plays, for example, in, in the English Premier League because a lot of those guys make a lot of money. So what's that for them? Nothing. They risk a lot. There's not a lot of reward. But as we know, soccer is an entirely global game. So a lot of the players in um, in sort of the, the middle leagues or or some some leagues that are smaller in, in other countries, um, you know, they're they're coming from uh, poor backgrounds, right? They're coming from South America, from Africa, and other places where you know they they just you know there's not a lot there financially. So uh, Wilson and folks like him would often befriend these guys, fly to say Africa or South America or some some village where where the soccer players from, befriends his family. And then they realize, oh, this village actually doesn't have running water. Well, I'll pay for it. Yeah, I'll install that. And all this money is coming from the, the triads. And this gets the fixer really, really entrenched with the player, with his family, with maybe other players nearby. Um, and this is so Wilson became very adept at these sorts of fixes. But he would also. He's such a strange guy. I got to know Wilson very well. Um he he was discovered in uh, Finland, uh, just near the Arctic Circle. There was a team there, and he, um, a policeman, uh, if I if I remember correctly, was in a fast food place and saw Wilson berating several of the players on the local team, who of course were locally well known. And he started thinking, "What's going on here?" You know. <laughs> um, and what had happened is they they hadn't affected the fix properly. You know, they Wilson had made this plan with them, coordinated with uh, the betting syndicates back in the Far East. The game started and these guys hadn't done their job. And Wilson was you know, threatening them with violence. Uh, eventually, Wilson was arrested um, and he was attached to so many fixes in so many countries that he became this witness that uh, that so many uh, uh, criminal uh, law enforcement authorities in different countries wanted to wanted to have. So what they ended up doing was parking him in Budapest as a cooperating witness. And he would just go around and I mean, people would come and visit him uh, to get to get to evidence. And that's eventually where I where I met him. I, I made several visits to to see him. And surprisingly, he was open. And the thing is, a lot of these guys, they're boastful. They're proud of what they've done. They think they're very clever. They think they've gotten away with it. Um, and what they've done really is, um, you know, they've uh, they pulled the rug out from under the, the global game. I mean, what, what's your sense of like uh, sports corruption in general? I mean, is American football, for example, I mean, corruptible or corrupted or, or what's your sense of that? Yeah, 
That's a question that you hear all the time, especially now. I'm sure there are um, uh, football fans, uh, NFL fans on the call today. And, and um, you know, after last weekend's uh, games, you know, there's a lot of talk about, oh, the NFL's fixed or, you know, they want this team or this player in the Super Bowl and they don't want the other one. And um, see, that, that's the thing, especially like as a reporter, it, not only about this issue, but about so many others. Um, generally, like, what do we like to do? We like to look at something and, and feel like we know what's really going on, right? And and then and then uh, uh, voice our conclusions. But as a reporter, I don't have that luxury. I got to actually figure it out. You know, um, it's easy to say to watch TV and say, "Oh, why is that penalty called it fixed?" It doesn't really work that way. You know, I mean, there's got to be there's got to be motive, like any crime, right? Um, and there's got to be uh you know modus operandi right uh and you can and i've already explained more or less how it works in in soccer um you know it, it's very hard to fix a, a, an nfl game you know it's very hard um and the players don't really have the financial incentive to do it as i mentioned earlier um you know most of those guys are I mean, I forgot, maybe some of you know the minimum salary in the NFL. I don't, but it's, it's you know, it's, I'm sure it's, it's, it's a good salary. Um, and the thing is, the NFL is a, is a contained unit of a set number of teams. They, they're all located in one country. There is a commissioner. The thing about soccer is that it's completely decentralized. You know, there, there are games all over the world in every country many countries have their own professional leagues within those leagues there are different tiers they also have their national teams their youth teams men's and women's teams and the vast majority of these games are listed on sports books online both in the the, the white market the black market the gray market all over the world that's the foundation of fixing is can i put money on it is there liquidity in that market and um, you know you you can you can bet on like third tier badminton, you know, in the Asian markets. <laughs> badminton is often fixed precisely because of that fact. Now, the NFL, it's just very hard to see how the NFL would be fixed or why. I mean, of course, the motive would be you know TV ratings. We want we want to make sure that people continually wa watch the NFL. We have we, the NFL like every other TV program has some. Um, as competition uh, from other sports and other TV programs. So of course they want to perpetuate their brand and their program. So, you know, you, you could see that motive, but it's very hard to see how it would actually work. I see. I see. George. So did you, you ever in your analyses come across any examples in which sports were fixed for reasons other than money? For example, I will go to my grave convinced that there's no way Villanova could have beaten Georgetown in 1985 if the game hadn't been fixed. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, my response to that is there was no shot clock back then. So that's why they won, you know, if they're, if they're, I mean, that's why they instituted the shot clock. Um, for those of you who remember watching that game, um, well, see, that's the thing. People get emotional about these things because we love sports, you know, and we have our favorite teams and all that. And, and um, you know, the, the, the fact is that sometimes they're upsets, right? 
I mean, there's the miracle on ice. There's Villanova beating yeah. Georgetown, et cetera. Especially if it's a, a one game, one game series like that. And especially if it's college players, because these are kids. Sometimes they can't handle the moment. Um, so, you know, to, but to answer your question, um, you know, there is there is an instance that I can remember where, and this does often happen, where um, politicians or state governors in, I wouldn't say the United States, although I, it might have happened in the past, but I know of a couple of specific instances where political favors were traded through the results of, of games, mm. you know. Um, but, but that in itself, I'm sure you could just easily, as easily tied it with financial concern. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Alden. Um, my question is how high up does this go? Um, you suggested that sort of mid-league, middle tier people are, uh, more corruptible because they're not making a whole lot of money. Uh, but on, uh, what about the Bundesliga and the, and the Premier League in England and, and so on in and South America everywhere else is it going into there and is it in the World Cup? Mm -hmm. Not so much. Let's put it that way. Um, there was a case in Italy in Syria, if, if I'm not mistaken. Um, God, I'm trying to remember the year. This was uh, early 2000s. It's it's a crazy case. Um, so the one it, I think that the score was close at halftime. The, the teams came out in the second half and one team just just shellacked the other one and, and they won going away. Right. And then afterwards, uh, the players went home and one of the players on the losing team fell asleep at the wheel of his car and and got in a car accident. And uh, they, they they took him to the hospital. And um, as they were, um, you know, giving him aid, they uh, they ran a blood test and they saw that he had some drug in his system and it turned out that one of his teammates during halftime had drugged all the other guys on the team <laughs> in the locker room. and and it turned out that his wife was involved in the conspiracy she had gone to i think she worked i'm trying to remember all the details but she had worked at it as a as an assistant to a dentist or another physician and had uh, taken a bunch of, of drugs and given them to her husband who then administered them. And now this husband was in league with uh, obviously a, a criminal syndicate. Um, crazy case. So, um, it, but you don't often see it in the higher leagues simply for the financial reason I mentioned. Uh, you know, there, there was an interesting case um, this was one of the foundational fixes many years ago in the English Premier League um, that had sort of widespread effect in many different ways later. But this was between two English Premier League teams. And in the middle of the game, the, the stadium lights went dark. And um, the people who worked the stadium, they couldn't get the lights back on. And the game was called. Now, in those days, um, the sports books that were taking bets in the UK, they they had a rule if, if a match got to a certain point in, in the match, then the, uh, all bets were valid. And it was it was only after this point that the lights went off. So people started thinking, is there some sort of fit? This was really well before people understood that this was going on uh, widely. Um, so years later, of course, we figured out that this was run 
by actually a Malaysian man named Paul Poir, who became very, very prominent and famous later on. I met him uh, years later in the elevator uh, of the courthouse in Las Vegas, uh, where his, uh, his attorney was standing between the two of us and was saying, you, you can't talk to him. <laughs> um, but Paul Poir ended up becoming the world's biggest bookmaker. And it was basically run off of that one fix, which is called the lights out fix, um, which he, he administered. Basically he got in, he had a couple of local agents in England and they of course got to the technicians who worked the stadium. Um, and Paul, uh, who, who had been a pretty prominent street bookie in Malaysia in Kuala Lumpur, uh, and had had ties to uh, criminal outfits. Paul engineered this thing and put all of his money on it. And he profited so heavily off of it that he was able to um, um, ride the wave of like sort of digital um, transformation with the internet, basically taking street books or book, uh, bookmakers off of the street, putting them online and and accessing just so much more money. So Paul became off of that fix became the world's biggest bookmaker. Um, anyway, I could talk plenty about Paul because he's he's a very interesting oh, guy. But uh, anyway, not too long. <laughs> well, I'm convinced that the Dodgers must have taken a dive this last year since they had the best record baseball and couldn't get past the first damn series. But uh, I'd like to switch the subject if you don't mind to Ukraine and Russia. Yeah, my son has a master's in national security and intelligence methodology. And he said he was not at all surprised about the invasion. He was horrified, but not surprised because over the years, NATO has gotten closer and closer and closer to Russia so that they are surrounded. And at some point in time, they were going to strike out. Do you agree with that analysis? Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, that's an issue that um, is often discussed is, you know, for possible motivation for what we've seen. Um, it's, it's, it's so hard to, so hard to come down definitively on that because I believe that, uh, that countries should, should have and do have the right for self-determination and that um, um, groups like NATO I don't know, can decide uh, who they want to accept, right? But on the other hand, you have to be realistic about things. Uh, you know, Russia is the largest nuclear power in the world. Um, and uh, well, at least we used to think they had a very strong army, military. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, Russia, when Soviet Union broke apart, Russia was on its knees for about 15 years or at least a decade. And, uh, you know, we, the United States and others in the West, um, you know, had free reign in Eastern Europe. Um, and, uh, and Russia under Putin profited greatly, of course, through uh, the rise in uh, prices for, um, for um, uh, oil and gas, the foundation of their economy. And, and eventually Putin, in, starting in 2008, began to formulate a new, new idea about what Russia was and how it was going to face the West. And it was squarely based on this idea of NATO and ex expressly on the, uh, the possibility of Georgia and Ukraine entering NATO. So you're right. Your son is right in, in a way, but that's not the complete answer. Um, 
because you, know, you talk to the Baltic nations, you talk to Ukrainians, of course, or at least most of them, and, and you can even talk to Warsaw Pact countries like Poland, um, who realize that whatever comes, you know, they, they could be after that. And, uh, and these, these folks know the issues better than anybody. And, um, you know, they'll tell you that, uh, that uh, NATO, joining NATO is a good thing for them. And that, you know, there is no sphere of influence for Russia and there shouldn't be. Um, and I believe that too. So it's a really complicated question to answer. No, I, I would just add, and I'm well aware of the fact that Putin would like to reconstitute the old Soviet Union. Uh, and, you know, I, I studied Russia when I was in college uh, and the empire was certainly included Ukraine for years and years and years. And so he feels that really historically that should be part of Russia. So I understand his motivation and I understand his paranoia that he's being surrounded more and more. So I'm not surprised that he struck out. I'm totally against it. Don't get me wrong. Uh, and I absolutely agree with you that these countries have the, the, their own right of self-determination, no question about it, especially since some of my ancestors are from Latvia. So I hear about that all the time. Sure. And, and you know, the other thing is that, um, uh, you know, yes, Russia has relations and or, um, uh, I don't know what the word is exactly, but with with some of the countries to the West, right? You know, of course, I mean, the Warsaw, Warsaw itself used to be part of the Russian Empire. Yep. Um, but Russia is the largest country in the world by far. And if they want to, if they want to expand, they have they have plenty of room if they just look east, do they not? <laughs> so I don't know why they're continually focused on the West. I mean, I do, of course, but um, you know, that's something that maybe is talked about less, uh, you know, the, the fact that they they already do have plenty of room for themselves. Uh, Jerry, like the rest of us, is just pissed off that his son is smarter than he is. <laughs> True. <laughs> uh, Ham. Yeah. Uh, my question brings together uh, politics and sports. Great. And uh, uh, if, if, if these different uh, games had been fixed, how come... Trump and Santos and McCarthy weren't in on it. <laughs> Maybe they were. Maybe we'll find out. I mean, Santos it's actually played center forward for the uh, U.S. team, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Mason. Thanks. Mason. Uh, the war in Ukraine uh, appears to have evolved into a... Uh, war of attrition that could go on for a long time. Uh, Russia has a much greater population. They've got the Wagner group uh, pulling tens of thousands of people out of prisons and throwing them into the meat grinder. Uh, do you think in the long run that Ukraine has the manpower to withstand a sustained uh, Russian invasion? Great question. Yeah, it, it doesn't, it's not even, right? Um, but I, I would I would posit that it's not necessarily about manpower. It's more about will. Yeah. Uh, and I think the great un, uh, overestimation of uh, Russian military capability pre-war was really not about men and materiel. It was really about the, with a will to fight. Um, of course, issues of corruption come into play in Russia when you see 
um, what it, what the Russian military looked like on the battlefield, and you see how it was corrupted over the years by military officials pocketing money that was supposed to go to other places. But I think, time, sorry, Ukraine was known for years as one of the most corrupt countries in the world. So you'd expect to see the same adverse effect in that country. Yes. But there's a big difference, and that gets to my point, and that is about the will to fight. Um, you know, Ukraine is defending itself. Russia is sort of on an adventure. At least that's how it, it is in the rank and file there. The, the folks from Putin on down at the top who are administering this whole thing do are doing so philosophically, but the, the troops are, you know, a lot of them, as I'm sure you know, they didn't even know where they were going or that they were actually going into a war, whereas the Ukrainians had been defending their sovereignty, like, right. you know, as, 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 as fundamental as that sounds, that's what it is for the last eight, nine years, nine years. Um, so, yes, Ukraine is very corrupt. So is Russia. Um, um, you know, the thing is, Russia, Ukraine is is corrupt. Um but Russia is not corrupt. Russia is also corrupt in, in specific ways, but it, it's more um, corroded from, from the inside. That's the difference. Um, you know, Russia, Ukraine is corrupt, but it also has a very vibrant political society. You know, people feel engaged. Um, they, uh, they take to the streets, they vote. They, uh, they may not like their leaders. They may not like the outcomes of some elections, but they feel like they have a stake in them. You know, as you know, folks in Russia are completely silenced and they're not politically active at all. And right. and they have and they're sickened with, um, um, you know, the, a dictatorship. I mean, he's been for 23 years, you know, yep. um, which is astounding. So anyway, back, back to the back to your question. It is a war of attrition. We don't know how it's going to end. The main problem is that each side thinks it's winning or thinks it has won already. And uh, Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, can't really sell any compromise to his people who've made such a great sacrifice. So we're all in a pretty tough spot. Doug. Yeah, this is a funny kind of a schizophrenic uh, discussion, you know, ranging from uh, sports to <laughs> to uh, international war and conflict and stuff. But I have a, a, a kind of an odd question that I would like to ask about um, how a new sport that's on the rise can avoid uh, the possibility down the line that it could be corrupted uh, and, uh, you know, have big money influences. And the, the sport I'm thinking about is Ultimate Frisbee, uh, which I know a little bit about because my, my son kind of works in this field. But uh, it is actually an international sport now. There was a, a recent international uh, tournament uh, in Memphis, and there were 21 countries from around the world that participated uh, from, from all continents and so forth. Uh, it's not a sport that has become uh, yet uh, into uh, big money. And so you'd think that it would be difficult to... Uh, influence teams or individual players by offering them uh, lots of money and stuff. But I guess my question is, at, at some point, this sport is, is going to become recognized as a really legitimate uh, sport. 
uh, it's likely to develop uh, financial uh, backing in a, a way that it hasn't really gotten into yet. Um, is there anything that, that it can do uh, to, shall we say, protect the teams and the players against future corruption? Yeah, well, you know, it doesn't matter so much how, like if the players themselves are are earning any salaries. It, it simply matters if the games are listed on sports books. Um, if you can bet on them, and uh, secondarily, if if the games attract any kind of liquid market in the sports books, because the the more the more liquid a, a market is for a particular game, the easier it is to hide illegitimate uh, bets within the the legitimate money. Um, setting that aside, to more to your point. Um, I think you know you can look at examples from other leagues and and uh, steps that, that other sports have taken because people who administer big time sports are very much aware that this is a problem and that it occurs regularly. Um, so some some leagues and some teams have hired folks from say uh, the FBI. I mean people who are ex FBI or F law ex law enforcement to sort of be around. You know, to listen, to look, to talk to players, to talk to coaches, to keep an eye on things. Um, also, uh, Chris Eaton, the gentleman I mentioned earlier, who used to be the head of security at FIFA, uh, while he was there, he instituted some changes also. For, so, for example, he, he put together uh, um, an anonymous tip line that players could, could use because sometimes these players don't really want to be involved in fixes, but they feel like they can't get out of them or they feel like they're in physical danger if they say anything. Uh, so Chris instituted this sort of like red phone sort of thing where um, a lot of players could call in and and uh, and get help for themselves while also alerting officials to, to what's going on. So I would say that, you know, the Frisbee folks, the ultimate Frisbee people, um, do they call it that or do they call it, because it's a trademark, or they call it like disc or something? Well, they call it ultimate. Ultimate, ultimate, yeah. Um, so yeah, so I think you gotta have you gotta have some. I mean, as it, as as strange as it sounds, like having an ex FBI person um, hanging around your sports league or your games. I mean, it, it might be the, the sort of bitter pill, but but uh, yeah, but essential. And then um, you look to some of the reforms that somebody like Chris Eaton was putting together at FIFA. Okay, uh, uh, Marcy. Um, <clears throat> back to Ukraine uh, and your point that Zelensky can't sell a compromise to his people. Chris Hedges said last fall that the one thing on which he and Kissinger agreed was that Putin would, would never stop. And, and I think he said without some deal being made. What do you think of that idea? Mm -hmm. Well, I would go one step further and I would say that Putin wouldn't stop even if a deal was made. Um, <laughs> that's Ukraine's, that's Ukraine's, um, you know, has always been Ukraine's problem is, is its neighbor. And that will, and that will never change. Um, you know, I mean, I could get into all sort of, I mean, I've read widely and written quite a bit about sort of the era of Kievan Rus and the founding of Kievan Rus and and um, that early history of the, the you know the Vikings coming down uh, the Dnieper and sort of 
mingling with the local folks and sort of the foundation, the, the origin of, of, of uh, society there and how Russia and Ukraine just will never <laughs> agree on that story. Uh, and that is why, you know, to me, it's not really, I mean, it is some parts about um, uh, sort of the fall of the Soviet Union and, and the pain that uh, the Russian people endured. It is about the reconstitution of the Russian empire, but I think it's really about much more. And it's about, you know, who owns history, who owns the history that goes back to ninth uh, century, 10th century, when the Vikings first started coming down on trying to figure out a way to get to Byzantium uh, and realizing, oh, this place is also nice and we can hang here. So, um, you know, that that's really what it's about. And, um, you know, Ukraine, you know, the, while I was in the war uh, just last year, I mean, I having lived in Russia and having worked there for so long, I have a lot of friendships there and I have a lot of contacts and I, I really like the place. And the same for me in Ukraine. Uh, you know, I, I speak Russian and I have been there, you know, I've just spent a lot of time there. And uh, when they invaded, um, I really felt bamboozled by them. And, uh, and I realized that they were reverting to form. And I told myself that, um, you know, history is, is more than just for reading, you know, that I was now experiencing it firsthand. And, um, yeah, it just, there were a lot, of, a lot of moments there where you just sort of had to accept a new reality. Um, but this has always been Ukraine's reality, this neighbor. So it's funny that you mentioned Kissinger because I was going to bring him up just, just now. Um, so I don't know if you, you, either of you saw recently that Kissinger, who, by the way, is, is, is a favorite of Putin's and um, has, is held up often by Russia, um, because Kissinger has a sort of view that's maybe a little bit different than most folks in Washington regarding Russia, which is what made his recent comments all the more interesting and powerful because he, he said, I was watching this um, talk that he was giving remotely at the, the, the Davos forum. And he said that the only way this is gonna end is if NATO accepts Ukraine. Now, I've always thought that that is a, just a ridiculous proposition. This was something that was needlessly provoking Russia from 2006 or seven onward. And it was unrealistic that NATO was ever gonna accept Ukraine. But this coming from Kissinger made me think twice because um, the trade-off is, is, is this, the trade-off is, uh, you know, move everything back to the, pre, to the February 24, 2022 line, which means that, you know, Russia takes it's part of Donbass, right? Russia keeps Crimea, but in exchange, Ukraine gets the, the guarantee of NATO membership. And that is the only thing that would prevent Russia from further needling Ukraine. It's kind of genius in a way. I don't know how realistic it is, but that could be something that Zelensky could sell to his brother. Oh, I, when you were uh, there, Brett, in uh, Russia and Ukraine, the uh, people, in the eastern regions, from what I can see from uh, reading some novels and stuff, those people got along pretty much the way the Serbs and the Croats did in Yugoslavia, where they were, you know, they were very uh, close linguistically and historically, and many, and marriages and families, that this went on for quite a number of years. And then a political crisis comes, and then the people 
begin to go at one another and hostilities and, and differences. Did you see that in Ukraine and those regions? Well, I know I've, I've uh, you know, yeah, sorry to interrupt, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, I've traveled pretty widely in Donbass and, and that area um, from Kharkiv uh, down to Berdyansk and Melitopol, Mariupol, and these yeah. places that maybe some of you have just, you know, heard of lately, um, <laughs> or maybe not, maybe not. Um, and uh, this is before 14, before a front line developed there. Um, so I, I always enjoyed traveling in those areas because I just found life there so different from my own and people so interesting. And, um, you know, I just, I just never saw, I didn't foresee this kind of conflict coming because like you say, there's just, everybody is, has family on one side or the others to the point where it doesn't even feel like they're two sides to things. It's all mm -hmm. sort of, you know, these are, these are borderlands and it feels like the border is maybe arbitrary or artificial even. Um, and everybody's <laughs> speaking the same language. There's not some difference in dialect. Um, people more or less like broadly kind of look the same. Uh, they have the same general shared culture, um, but there's this border there. So yeah, it's, um, it's tough to stomach that it's come to this. But what about the story of the kid that you're going to tell? The story of the family from Michigan. Oh right, yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's so. So yeah, it's a book that I have coming out in May. Uh, it's called Lost Son, and uh, it's an expansion of an article I did for the news, the newspaper, the journal, uh, a few years ago. And it's basically it's the story of a young man from Michigan who comes of age after 9/11. Uh, which affects him profoundly. He um, gets very interested in uh, global conflict, foreign languages, religions, um, at the same time that the internet and social media are developing to the point that they're, they're allowing him to reach out into the world and, um, and contact and speak with different people all over the place. Um, he's one of these guys who, you know, sort of doesn't develop a lot of close friendships, uh, doesn't really have a romantic life, lives, lives at home with his parents, is very bright, um, and he becomes very adept at um, learning all the things that are going on in, uh, in areas of conflict in the world. And his internet activity catches the attention of the, uh, the FBI in Detroit, and they visit his house, and they, um, they recruit him to come work for them in uh, counterterrorism, and he joins a program that's called the confidential human source program which is more or less a, a collection a clandestine collection of uh, civilians um, who are sort of patching holes in the fbi's knowledge and abilities right fbi didn't have a lot of people who spoke arabic for example my subject billy riley he did he taught himself arabic online and he works for them in counterterrorism for a number of years in, in the Detroit area, getting gets involved in uh, ever more increasing, um, increasingly dangerous and uh, risky things, uh, both in person with um, terror targets and also reaching out through social media to contact, for example, people who are recruiters for ISIS and or planning bombings in, in ISIS, for ISIS all over the world.
Um, and then the war in Ukraine breaks out in 2014. He gets really interested in that. And uh, one day he tells his parents he's going to Russia. They don't understand why. He takes off. He's there for about six weeks, talking to them every day. And then he disappears. And the very next day, his FBI handler comes to the house and says he doesn't know anything about a trip and had just randomly then the fbi starts confiscating devices at the house and then stops communicating to the family the family is trying to figure out what went on right they're trying to figure out where their son is and that's when they come upon uh one phone that had been left behind which reveals uh, text messages between their son and his hand in which they're discussing the trip to russia so the parents know that the fbi knew about the trip all along and that they're covering something up. So the parents go on a, a multi-year sort of adventure trying to navigate the FBI, Washington, and then eventually going to Russia themselves. They, they can't figure it out. And that's when someone told me about the case and I took it up. And then I started searching for Billy Riley. And I went to Russia and Ukraine and figured out all of this wild stuff about his activities there and what had happened to him so so that book is coming out like i said in may and uh boy it's hard to believe that it's uh it's almost mm -hmm. a place. that's gonna be a movie <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very all right last last sort of question uh david allen you had one um uh, reaching back to Jeff's reminder to us earlier about history, about uh, how we have to see these things across a, a piece of time, leads me to drawing uh, a parallel between what's going on in the Ukraine and what's going on for at least uh, the very much broader world in the West. As I think you have uh, so uh, adroitly let us spread uh, the difference between Ukraine and Russia is that Ukraine, uh, the soldiers there, the whole populace are fighting for everything. Uh, and it is the will. I was an infantry officer. I damn well know uh, the only way uh, violent outcomes are determined is by the will of those people who in place. Uh, I want to suggest that just as it is Ukraine fighting for their very survival, so we, whoever the hell we is in the West, and hopefully even more broadly than that, uh, are fighting for a world order uh, in which uh, it is not okay and you will be repelled if you try to take somebody else's place. And there's very compelling reason to do that. You look back over thousands of years of history, it is nothing but a story of one strong man trying to take it away from some other. And it's led us to literally global annihilation because of what we've done technologically. We now, even if we didn't over all those thousands of years, have an utterly vested interest in preventing uh, more of this business that the human race is clearly inclined to, 
which is one bad guy trying to take it away from somebody else. We have our very survival invested in stopping what Russia is doing here. Will we wake up soon enough to know that we must do that? I suggest. And thank you so much for a remarkable hour. Really. Thank you. Wow. Thank you. Yes. Wow. Thank you, for coming on. Great. <laughs> Very thank, good. Thank all of you. I mean, this has been great. I mean, it's just, you guys are and, and ladies, of, two, of course, too, are uh, just so so sharp and on it and uh, informed and curious. And uh, it's been great speaking with you all. So okay. one last thing, though, Brett, who should we pick for the Super Bowl? Eagles. <laughs> Eagles. Six is in. All right. Thank you, everybody. That was Brett Forrest. He is a national security reporter for the Wall Street Journal. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or from wherever you get your podcast. Our podcast also stream on WIOXradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard. <laughs>